This year, we are all looking for the perfect holiday gift. And today I want to tell you about the gallery. The gallery shop is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, for the holiday season, the gallery is exclusively offering our listeners 25% off your next purchase using the code FRIDAY. That's 25% off your next purchase at thegallery.com. That's thegallery, G-A-L-R-Y, using the code FRIDAY. The Gallery. Create your perfect space. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. We're going to get right into the case today because I know that you need a diversion. Abducted from home. Cases where children go missing or are murdered really haunt me. It's terrifying when they are missing. So many horrible scenarios are considered as to how they are being treated or if they are still alive. When children are found dead after having gone missing, often the parents or other family members are looked into. Unfortunately, we have seen on many occasions where the parents or one of the parents does indeed turn out to be the one responsible, usually after they have been in the news tearfully asking for their child or stepchild to be returned. A recent example is the allegedly horrible stepmother of Gannon Stouch. While the boy's father was out of town for work, she claimed he went missing. In reality, she allegedly killed him. Authorities believe she allegedly shot and stabbed him to death. There were blood spatters on the wall blood soaked through the carpet, and blood on his mattress. He was 11 years old. If you don't like your lover's son, leave. If you don't like your husband's son, leave. No one is making you stay. Her trial is delayed due to COVID. That piece of crap guy, Christopher Watts, who killed his own children, his two small daughters, and then he killed his wife. He too went on TV with pleas for their safe return the horrible stepmother of Zara Baker. And Zara's father, as he really was, is equally guilty as he let it happen to her and did nothing to protect her. Zara had a prosthetic leg and her stepmother started her abuse by making the kid run up a hill and yelling at her to hurry up, chastising her when she wasn't fast enough, etc. She ended up with a prosthetic leg after two bouts of cancer that also affected her hearing. She went on to direct physical abuse. That, that's the stepmother, that is. And I can't even get into all of it. It's just so sad. Poor Zara was reported missing, but eventually turned up dead. The stepmom is in prison, convicted, and the father moved back to Australia, as far as I know. You can check out another podcast called Suffer the Little Children, episode 38, for more on Zara Baker's story. I'll put it in my show notes so you can find it. Kyron Harmon is another one that haunts me. They still don't know where he is, but it certainly looks like his stepmom did it or knows something about it. Kyron has yet to be found. Today's case is about a little girl who went missing, and when she was found dead, authorities looked to her parents. It does not seem to me that her parents were in any way responsible, but you be the judge. Midlothian, Illinois is approximately a half an hour south of Chicago. September 9, 1988, seven-year-old Jacqueline DeWallaby went missing from her home in Midlothian in the middle of the night. 
Her mom had last seen her sleeping around 11 p.m. She still had the overhead reading light on and had been perusing the Christmas catalog when she fell asleep. Cynthia turned off the light above Jacqueline and went to bed herself. David, Jacqueline's father, woke around 8 a.m. and was surprised that Jacqueline was not watching cartoons. He thought she was still sleeping, so he and Jacqueline's little brother, David Jr., ate cereal and watched cartoons together. A little later, Cynthia and David found that Jacqueline was not in her room. David saw that the front door was slightly ajar. Later, Cynthia would discover that the screen on the basement window had been cut open and the window smashed. They called all of Jacqueline's friends and anyone else they could think of who might have known where Jacqueline was, but no one knew. They called the police. David's mother, Anna, had an apartment in the basement, but she had not spent the night there that particular night. David had thought maybe she had left the front door slightly open when she went to meet friends, but that didn't explain the broken basement window. They reported Jacqueline missing and told authorities that they did not notice anything unusual in the middle of the night. They did not hear anything, and they all slept peacefully, they told them. Jacqueline, at just seven, would have been very young to have run away, but police had to consider even this. They had to consider that she might have wandered from the house, and they had to consider whether someone had broken into the house and taken Jacqueline. A search was on, including local volunteers, a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter, and police dogs. Flyers were made up with Jacqueline's photo. Cynthia told them how the biological father of Jacqueline had tried to break into her home when Jacqueline was a baby, and tried to take her then. Jimmy Guess, the father, did not have any custody, and David had adopted Jacqueline. They looked into Jimmy Guess, who was Jacqueline's biological father, but he was in prison in Florida and had been for four months. He was sentenced to seven years in prison for two counts of sexual battery, threatening with a deadly weapon, and one count of attempted sexual assault on a woman he met in a bar. He was in prison at the time and could not have taken Jacqueline. Nothing in the house was in disarray, and the only thing missing was Jacqueline's comforter. While everyone was searching and then waiting for any news, the police questioned David and Cynthia Dewallaby. The couple let the authorities have complete access to their home for the entire time that Jacqueline was missing. They had given them blood and urine samples and had given them access to any family medical records that were required. They went over the evening's events in detail. Jacqueline was last seen alive on Friday, September 9, 1988. On that day, David worked from 8 to 4 and arrived home at 5.30. He left at 6 p.m. to go bowling at the Anchor Bowl in Blue Island. He returned home from bowling around 9.20. Cynthia, Jacqueline, and Davy were home, as well as David's mother, Anna, and his sister, Michelle Goldrick. David's sister left shortly after David arrived home. Jacqueline went to her room with a Christmas catalog and went to bed around 10.30. David, Cynthia, and Davy sat in the family room watching television. David went to bed around 10.30. Cynthia watched TV until 11.30. Before going to bed, she turned off the lights in the living room and checked on the children. Jacqueline had fallen asleep with her overhead light on, which Cynthia turned off. Cynthia left the doors to the children's room open and her bedroom door ajar. She then went to sleep. Anna left home that evening around 10.30 to go to Papacino's restaurant in Oak Forest. Anna stated that she went out the back door of the house and checked to make sure that it was locked. Anna did not return home that night. On September 10, 1988, the Dewallaby's alarm clock rang at 7.30 a.m. Cynthia looked at the clock and asked David what the day was, 
He told her it was Saturday. She turned off the alarm and went back to sleep. At around 8 a.m., David was awakened by Davy. David got up and went into the living room where he saw that the front door was open. He closed the door, sat down, and watched cartoons with Davy. When he heard Cynthia awake about 9 a.m., David brought her a cup of coffee to the bedroom. Shortly afterwards, Cynthia asked if Jacqueline was awake. David told her no, and Cynthia said she was going to go wake her up. When Cynthia went into Jacqueline's room and saw that she was not there, Cynthia and David looked for her throughout the house. David then suggested that Jacqueline may have gone outside, so they looked for her outside. They got in the pickup truck and drove around the neighborhood looking for Jacqueline. In the meantime, Anna, the grandmother, came home. When David and Cynthia returned home, they discovered that one of the basement windows to Anna's apartment had been broken. They immediately called the Midlothian Police Department. The transcript of the Midlothian Police Department tape shows that David made the phone call at 10.26 a.m. Sadly, Jacqueline would not come home again. Her badly decomposed body was found three miles in another city, Blue Island. Islander Apartments had a small wooded area overlooking the Calumet River. On September 14th, Michael Chapman found Jacqueline's body near this area. She was wrapped in a blanket. He called the police. Her body was taken to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office for identification and cause of death. She was wrapped in a purple and white blanket and clad in matching pajamas. By the next morning, she was identified from dental records. Cause of death was strangulation. A six-foot length of rope had been wrapped around her neck. They could not determine if she had been sexually assaulted because of the state of decomposition, but her underwear were found lying a foot away from her. She had been dead for several days and was most likely killed that Saturday morning shortly after being abducted. No stains or semen were found on the underwear. Vaginal and anal swabs were taken but were negative. However, blood was present. Fingernail clippings had type O blood on them. Jacqueline herself was type O blood, as was her mother and little brother. David was type A. In the underwear, two hairs were found. One was a head hair consistent with Jacqueline's, and one was unknown pubic hair. The condition of the nightgown was so bad that they could not perform chemical tests. Three hairs were found on the rope. Two were consistent with Jacqueline, and one was not consistent with Jacqueline or anyone else in the house. Type O blood stains were found on Jacqueline's pillow. No blood stains on the mattress. Complete x-rays were done and no fractures. There were no marks on her body that would show she had been bound or tied up in any way. No bruises on skin that was able to be looked at. Sexual molestation could not be ruled in or out. Both Cynthia and David had hired a lawyer soon after Jacqueline was found. The lawyer advised them not to say anything further. They had said everything that they knew. They had given everything required up to this point. With no other suspects, authorities had started to focus on the parents. There were no records of any child abuse incidents on either parent. September 17th, Jacqueline was laid to rest. More than 100 mourners paid their respects. The very next day, the day after Jacqueline was laid to rest, the Dewallabies were given search warrants and the police took away nine paper bags from the home. The bags were filled with items to take to the crime lab. They took the blue Chevy Malibu that the family used as well. The police gave a statement that Jacqueline was strangled manually and the rope was tied around her neck to confuse investigators. Dr. Robert Stein refuted this. He said he was certain that she had been strangled to death with the rope. 
After this, the police gave a statement saying that the family members had not yet been ruled out as suspects. Neighbors said Cynthia and David were loving and caring parents and that they had never heard either parent even raise their voice to the kids. By all accounts, up to this point, David had been a great stepdad. His boss said it was rare for David to take a day off, but one of those rare days was when he went to pick up the adoption papers for his daughter. He was proud and happy. It really did seem unlikely that David or Cynthia, or both, were responsible for Jacqueline's death. Investigators distributed photos of Cynthia, David, and the Dwallaby's car at the apartment complex where Jacqueline had been found. They asked if anyone had seen them in the area. November 22, 1988, both Cynthia and David were arrested for first-degree murder of their daughter. A resident of Blue Island Apartment Complex had said that he saw David and the blue Chevy Malibu in the apartment complex. Witness testimony can obviously be very problematic. Many have been arrested and even convicted based on eyewitness testimony to then have DNA go on years later to disprove it. This eyewitness testimony, however, was what they used to arrest the parents. David Jr., the five-year-old boy, was taken into care. They had a physician examine David Jr., and allegedly she found welts, some old and new, and they came up with a scenario that both kids were being hit with a belt. They concluded that Jacqueline had threatened to tell someone, and this is what got her killed. Somehow, they also thought it was possible that David Jr. was even being sexually abused while at home. Patrick Murphy, Cook County Public Guardian for David Jr., said that they had questioned him incessantly for three to four days, and it was unconscionable what they did to this kid, he said. He said that after he spoke with David Jr. and looking at medical records, he could not see how they came to this conclusion. He also said that David Jr. was always asking for his parents and begging to go home. The neighbors were still supportive, and most of them felt that definitely a mistake had been made arresting David and Cynthia. During this time, Cynthia found that she was three months pregnant. Cynthia was bonded out of prison after the bond was reduced on December 15th. They were still working on getting David out. December 16th, David was released on bond. David Jr. was still not able to come home, but he was able to go live with David's sister, Rose, for a while. He was able to have supervised visits with his mother and father. September 1989, almost a year after Jacqueline was strangled and left in the tall weeds of Blue Island, Perry Hernandez broke a window to get into a home and took a six-year-old girl. She had been sleeping in a bed three feet from her twin brother. She lived in this home with her parents and four siblings. Everyone in the family remained sleeping during the abduction. He covered the little girl's face with his hand and told her to be quiet. He was able to break the window, abduct her next to her sleeping brother, and take her out of the home with six other people in it, all without alerting anyone. He took the girl to a railroad bridge and raped her, and then he let her go back home. This happened in Blue Island, just one mile from where Jacqueline's body was found. This girl, however, lived, and the girl was able to identify Perry as her neighbor. Perry was sentenced to 45 years in prison. Perry's girlfriend lived five blocks from Jacqueline's house, and the girlfriend said Perry had spent the night quite often. Defense saw Perry as a potential suspect in the abduction and murder of Jacqueline. 
Also, the night before Jacqueline had disappeared, Ephesabit Ziki had awakened in the middle of the night and interrupted an attempted burglary or abduction. She said it was Perry Hernandez, and she said she believed he was trying to abduct her seven-year-old daughter. She discovered her daughter wrapped up tightly in three blankets as if she had been bundled up to make it easier to carry out. Judge Richard Neville said that he did not regard the evidence from Mrs. Ziki about Perry Hernandez as being clear and convincing, and it could not be used in trial. So the jury would not hear about how Mrs. Ziki found him in her house and her daughter all wrapped up in blankets, and this happening just the night before Jacqueline was abducted. David and Cynthia had been fighting for one thing or another for over a year and a half by the time jury selection came about. First, they were desperate to find Jacqueline. Then they were fighting to find out who did that to Jacqueline. Then they were fighting to defend themselves and for their son to be with them and or other family members. They hadn't been given any peace to properly grieve, and now they were facing the trial. The first person on the stand was David's mother, who contradicted a statement that she had made earlier. She told them she had been mistaken when she said that the rope found around Jacqueline's neck looked like rope in the Dewalaby house. A neighbor said that he had seen David Jr. playing with the same type of rope that was found on Jacqueline. Everett Mann, who claimed that he had seen David at the crime scene the night Jacqueline disappeared, took the stand. Mann had been 75 yards away from the man, whom he believed to be David, and said the man had a very distinctive and prominent nose. David's attorney argued that man wouldn't be able to see a head, a nose, or any part of a human body from that distance. Also, Mann testified that the man was in a late 1970s dark blue Chevy Malibu. However, the Dewalabies had a light blue 1980s Chevy Malibu that looked very much different. On cross-examination, Mann agreed he wasn't able to determine if it was a man or woman, white or black, or anything about the person that he saw. He just saw a silhouette that seemed like a man. Jurors took a bus and were taken to the parking lot where Mann said he saw David. They saw next to nothing when they were put 75 feet away from where Mann was supposed to have seen David. A neighbor of the Dewalabies testified that she had seen the family Chevy parked outside of their home at the same time Mann had seen David at the crime scene. She woke about 2 a.m. and looked out the window and found that the only car parked outside was the light blue Chevy. Also, around 11.30 to 12 midnight, her dogs had started pacing and were barking. She told the jury her dogs would bark at strangers, but they liked the Dewalabies who lived next door. It was possible the dogs were barking at a stranger who was walking around the Dewalaby house. Brian Anderson, another neighbor, said he saw the Dewalaby's car parked in the same position on the night Jacqueline had disappeared, and the same position on the following day, indicating that the car had not been driven during that time period. There had been a big party on the block that night, and Anderson had seen Cynthia squeeze her car in an awkward position between two cars in front of her house, and it was in the same position the next morning. The little girl who had been kidnapped and raped by Perry Hernandez took the stand. She testified in defense of David and Cynthia and said, I got stole. He took me out of my bed. She told the jury Hernandez had held out a taut string while they were under the bridge. Her testimony did prove that a young child could be snatched from their bed in the middle of the night and not wake up the family. 
Part of the reason the parents were sitting there in the courtroom was that it was hard for investigators to believe that this could happen, that no one would wake up in the house while a child was being abducted. Prosecution argued that there were no signs of Hernandez, no fingerprints, no footprints, no trace of him in the Dwallaby home. Another thing prosecution said they had, the broken basement window. The prosecution said it could not be the entry point because of the layer of undisturbed dust. The defense said the dust was never even mentioned until 17 days after Jacqueline was missing, and it wasn't mentioned in the initial report. The report called the broken window the point of entry five times in the initial report. No photograph of undisturbed dust was taken. If there had been, this should have been photographed and noted, as it would have been good evidence that the window was not the point of entry. They also had said that at first the window had been broken from the inside and that it was broken to make it look like an intruder had come in. A forensic scientist who had reconstructed the broken window testified it had indeed been broken from the outside. The judge dismissed the jury for a break and then told the courtroom that there was insufficient evidence for Cynthia's case to go on to jury. However, he said there was sufficient evidence for David's case to go to jury. The only difference between David's and Cynthia's cases that the defense could figure out was Mann's testimony about seeing David. That had been shown to be discredited. The jury was brought back and updated and then sent away to deliberate on David's guilt or innocence. The jury deliberated for three days. They came back with a guilty verdict. Cynthia screamed out. Then she was crying. The courtroom was stunned. Cynthia broke her silence after this and told reporters that she and her husband were innocent and would never harm their daughter or anyone. She told them that someone out there knows something and begged for them to come forward. Sometime in mid-July, David Jr. was allowed to live with Cynthia and his baby sister, Carly Marie, who were now living in Tinley Park with Cynthia's mother. Cynthia and David had to sell the house in Midlothian to pay for their legal fees. She was not allowed to be alone with her children, however. Her mother had to be there for supervision. David's defense team requested a new trial. They said they had a new witness. Kathy Farley said she had been jogging the morning of September 10, 1988. It was along 118th Street in Elsib. This street was around five miles from the Dwallaby home. She said a car pulled up alongside her and asked her for directions to Blue Island. Two Hispanic men were in the car and there was a blanket in the back seat that looked like it was hiding something. Later that evening, she saw a news report on what happened to Jacqueline and thought about the men. She didn't think to come forward for some reason. She did think of it when she saw David's lawyer's number following David's conviction. She told the lawyer that the passenger looked like Perry Hernandez. Judge Neville refused to grant David a new trial based on this. David was brought to the courtroom again for his sentencing. He was given 40 years for the murder of Jacqueline and five years for concealing the homicide. October 31, 1990, David's attorneys filed a motion to have his murder conviction thrown out, citing new evidence. Gerald Bowman, an inmate who was in Cook County Jail in August, alleged he overheard a conversation that Perry Hernandez was having with a Hispanic gang. Gerald said Perry confessed to them that he tried to get in through the window, but it was making too much noise, so he went in through an open door. Gerald refused to sign the affidavit, however, saying he was worried about personal safety. He told them that he'd received a number of threats. 
In March 1991, Cynthia had to attend a child custody hearing. She still didn't have custody. Dr. Reed Schwartz, a clinical psychologist, testified that there was no indication that David Jr. had been physically or sexually abused. On March 11th, a judge said that Cynthia was a fit, capable, and willing parent, and she received full custody of both kids. June 1991, David's attorney, Robert Byman, asked the Illinois Appellate Court to reverse the guilty verdict. He expressed the belief that the evidence presented at trial failed to prove that David was the killer within a reasonable doubt. He also accused the judge of unfairly excluding information regarding the attempted abduction that took place just 24 hours before Jacqueline's abduction. Assistant State's Attorney David Como agreed that there wasn't one fact that stood out like a smoking gun, but stood by the eyewitness testimony even though it had been discredited during the trial. David's murder conviction was overturned on October 30, 1991. The appellate court ruled that the key witness testimony was vague and unreliable. It was also ruled that the prosecutors had not proven beyond all doubts that David was the only person that had the opportunity to murder Jacqueline. The ruling also noted that all basement windows were unlocked on the night of her disappearance. Now it was the prosecution's turn to seek an appeal. They had 21 days to do so or David DeWallaby would be a free man. Cook County State's Attorney Jack O'Malley filed an appeal opposing David's release. November 12, 1991, David DeWallaby walked out of Statesville Correctional Center after serving 18 months in prison. In a news conference, David vowed to search for Jacqueline's killer. In early January 1993, Cook County prosecutors said they were investigating the alibi of Timothy Guess, the brother of Jacqueline's biological father. Timothy, who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, had said he was working at Park Avenue Restaurant in Harvey on the night Jacqueline disappeared, and this was corroborated by three other employees. Unsolved Mysteries aired Jacqueline's case on the TV show, and they got a bunch of calls. Two callers were regular customers at the restaurant and said Timothy was not working that night. Nothing became from anything related to the information on Timothy Guest. Timothy Guest died in 2002. During a 1993 taped interview with Oprah Winfrey, David DeWallaby said that the couple stopped cooperating with police the day Jacqueline's body was discovered. He said the reason was that the public had learned Jacqueline was dead during the September 14, 1988 evening news, and while this was going on, investigators Shaughnessy and Alfred Hardman had held back that information from him for an hour and a half while they tried to elicit a confession. Nothing is worse in this world than losing your daughter. You couldn't be accused of a worse crime, David Dwallaby told Winfrey. The Dwallabys eventually changed their last name and moved. As of 2016, Perry Hernandez was still in prison on an unrelated conviction. Stay tuned for the historic case that is quite similar to the one that we featured today. Nineteen eleven, Chicago. On the morning of April 8, 1911, five-year-old Elsie Perubik left her home in Chicago, telling her mother that she was going to visit her Aunt Julia, whose house was just around the corner. On her way, she ran into some kids listening to an organ grinder. It was a short distance from her aunt's gate. 
However, she never made it to her aunt's house. Elsie's mother found this out several hours later when she went to her sister's house. Elsie had a lot of friends in the area, so her mother figured she was visiting at one of their houses. At 9 p.m., Frank Perubik, Elsie's dad, returned from work and went to the police at Heinemann Station to report her missing. Police initially agreed that she was likely spending the night with friends, but when she had not returned by the following morning, a search was on. A neighborhood boy told the police that he had seen a gypsy wagon with two women holding a little girl. There were several camps of what the newspapers called Romani people along the Des Plaines River. The camps were searched. A stolen-by-gypsies theory spread wildly and was compared to the disappearance of Lillian Wolf four years earlier. Lillian had been found with a group of gypsies. The Italian quarter was also searched as some children came forward to say they saw Elsie with the organ grinder. Elsie was described as small, with light golden hair and blue eyes, wearing a red one-piece dress, lace shoes, shoes that had laces rather than buttons, and black stockings. One month after her disappearance, on May 9, 1911, an electrical engineer found the body floating in the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. This was 35 miles outside of Chicago, near Joliet. She was still wearing the red dress and the black stocking she had on when she disappeared. The body was badly decomposed, and it appeared that it had been in the water for quite some time. The physician's autopsy findings concluded Elsie had not drowned and that she appeared to have been suffocated. Two physicians confirmed that there was no water in her lungs, so she had not drowned. E.A. Kingston, one of the physicians, said she had been attacked, which was often a euphemism for rape back then, and murdered before she was thrown into the water. W.R. Paddock, the other physician, said that there was every evidence that she had been wounded before being killed. Lieutenant Costello later told the press that she had been mistreated, seeming to indicate this meant her death was not the work of gypsies. Inspector Healy added, there seems to be no doubt that she was abused in the most fiendish way. Elsie's funeral was held on May 12, 1911 and attended by two to 3,000 people. Hundreds of floral arrangements were sent, including ones from the mayor and other city officials. Frank Perubik was quoted as saying, My little girl is at rest, and nothing matters to her now, but I shall never rest until I see her murderers paying the penalty for taking her life. A bearded bohemian hermit peddler who had a shack by a drainage canal near where Elsie lived was one of the suspects. But on May 15th, he had been cleared of any wrongdoing. On May 13th, the body of a well-dressed man was found in the canal at Willow Springs. He was considered to be a person of interest by the detectives. He had a Catholic holy prayer card on him with Polish writing, but no identification whatsoever. Other persons of interest came up, but like the others, they were dismissed. Elsie's death remains unsolved.